All right, if you'll open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18 as we continue our study through the Lord's ministry, we <clears throat> are brought to a subject that's very familiar. I've, I've preached probably more in 2022 on forgiveness than, than most years. Uh, I, don't, I don't credit that to anything, but I, I do say that to just let you know this isn't a message I preached before, but the, the contents thereof are going to sound somewhat familiar. But as we continue to strive to teach these things in the order that they occurred in the Lord's ministry, um, this brings us to a discourse on forgiveness. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 35 are the uh, verses that we'll cover here today. Starting in verse 15, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, <clears throat> anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them uh, of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Then came Peter him, to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him, until seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence. And he laid hands on him, and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet, and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were, <clears throat> they were very sorry, and came and told unto the Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desiredest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. <clears throat> so as you may recall in our, our last lesson, we saw the Lord teaching on the importance of the church's relationship to those outside their fellowship, as well as how they were to love the lost, both of which we have responsibilities to do the same. Here we see how he turns to teaching on matters within the church family. Uh, the necessity of us getting along, the necessity of us forgiving, the necessity of us handling um, disorderliness or, or unforgiveness or sin properly. If all Christians were perfect, 
<coughs> there would be no need for this instruction. Uh, but because we fail and sin, we need to know how to keep the church family holy. Uh, I, I remember hearing a preacher one time say, "If ever, I think he had a, a member who was kind of getting on his case about something, uh, and it was really concerning another member who was living a disorderly life, and he said, if all the members were perfect like you, uh, and unfortunately we all need to hear that, don't we? If all the other members were perfect little members like Joe Sitters is, or or Steve Kaiser, or whatever, boy, wouldn't we be a profitable church. No, we'd be a mess. We'd be probably a worse mess than we already are. But we are sinners saved by grace. And the very first five verses here, uh, five or six, deal with church discipline. So uh, I have taught on the church discipline, I think it was when I first got here, uh, and I'm going to cover all of that a little bit quicker this time so that we can tie it into the, the aspect of what the Lord is teaching here. The first section of text that Matthew writes about here is how to carefully and lovingly address faults between the brethren. Hear me now. Carefully and lovingly. I'm not giving you a list. Rebuke, rebuke, reprove, remove. I'm not just giving you a list, the Lord says, of how to handle it. I'm instructing you to do it carefully and lovingly with the intention of being forgiving and seeking restoration. Church discipline is not a beloved topic in any church, really, today. It has existed in just about every denominational institution at one point or another, uh, but sadly at this point we're, we're really one of the few uh, types of churches that still do. Even the harlot, even the Roman Catholic Church used to exercise church discipline. But sadly today, the purity of the church is not as precious to believers as getting folks into the seats. Uh, if they saw us disciplining people out, they would never join to begin with. When you strive to keep folks through entertainment, through overlooking gross sins, you are not acting as one of the Lord's true churches at all. Uh, and certainly not acting as a Baptist church. The pattern is clear. First, a private interview. Then bring two or three witnesses if they've not received the private interview. And if they've not received two or three witnesses, then take it to the church. And yes, there is an order to things, but again, carefully and lovingly go through these following three. First is the reproving of the beloved. And we see it from our text. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. I love that the word alone is there. Because the Lord's not saying... Go and tell everybody, get everybody all geared up and wound up tight about it, and then go tell the brother. It literally says, go tell the brother alone. Take the matter or take the concern to this one, this troubled one is how we're going to refer to him or her. Take it to the troubled one alone. Because what happens when you tell the masses? You tend to get an angry crowd. You, and they're all geared up. Are they going to be prepared to forgive? You've convinced them. You've labored to convince them most times just how ugly and heinous this sin is and how desperate we need to be to address it. That's not lovingly and carefully. He says, take it, to, take it to him that it be between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. This is what's at stake. A brother or a sister is living in sin or there's something identified that's, that's an issue that needs to be uh, dealt with. It needs to be done carefully and lovingly because you're seeking to regain a brother. You're seeking to restore a broken relationship. You're not going to them and saying, it's our way 
or the highway. You need to go to them with Scripture. You need to address the concern from the standpoint of the Bible. Because in anyone's opinion, everyone is wrong. Think about that. We don't need to address one another because our opinions are conflicting. We need to address one another because our lifestyles conflict the Word of God. This word reprove means to plead, to reason, to correct, and chasten. Now, depending on how you do it, sometimes it feels like it's just chastening. But you can't separate this word from its definition. To plead, to reason. We have one that we are praying over right now. And the concern in my communication with the one is, is one of pleading, of reasoning. I understand you have made decisions that are conflicting with what your stance with the Lord is. And I'm pleading with you. This is more important. I'm trying to reason with you that there'll be other jobs, that whatever the distraction may be, you got to be rid of it. Matthew Henry wrote, If a professed Christian is wronged by another, he ought not to complain of it to others, as is often done merely upon report, but to go to the offender privately, state the matter kindly, and show him his conduct. If it is not possible to speak with the one directly, then a letter is written typically from the pastor to be delivered to the disciplined member. A copy of that letter, which has always been my practice, is retained in the minutes of the church so that the church has clarity and transparency of what the issue was, what the concern was, and how it was handled. This is important because I'm not going to live forever. This is important because you're probably not going to live forever either. And those who come behind us, those future Bereans, they may be called forth to answer for something that we handled. And we need to be able to show that we did it scripturally and that we did it according to what the Lord had called for us to do. If the church is exercising these things in love with hopes of repentance, there is nothing to hide. See, the church should take every step necessary to prove by God's word their concern for the disciplined as well as why discipline was necessary. The second is rebuking of the beloved. This is also right here in Matthew 18. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. The word rebuking means to convict, to refute, to find fault with, and correct. The rebuking stage must be firm. It must be specific. For this disciplined member must be given every chance to repent. It needs to be firm, and in order for it to be firm at this point, because others are involved, you need to be in unity. You need to understand what the truth is, why this is an issue, and everyone needs to be on the same page. And if not, you need to investigate that and get it right. There's a purity to the Lord's church. They must know what they have done against the church and against the Lord. They must be pleaded with to repent, as we said with reproving. You don't just jump to rebuking. You have to reprove. They must understand the severity of what comes next. We've got it here in the text, but Titus writes about it, in Titus, or it's written about in Titus chapter 1, verse 13, Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. That probably sounds harsh to our precious 2023 snowflake ears. But a life is at stake. This is a very serious matter, the discipline inside the church. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. I don't know how many in here has been at the other end of church discipline. How many's ever experienced a church loved them so deeply 
that they've had to reach out to them and have a tough conversation? Have any loved their children so deeply they've had to discipline them? I wonder. Yeah. Is it because you hate them? Is it because you want to humiliate them? Cause for them to stare at walls and never make eye contact with individuals? Certainly not. It's because you love them. You desire good for them. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. It's written about in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. Them that sin, rebuke before all, that others also may fear. This rebuking is not necessarily, I don't like the phrase setting an example because it sometimes has a different connotation to it, but in a lot of ways it is. It's setting an example that we as a church is very important, that we are in unity. Not that we are brainwashed to all agree at every single thing, but that we are in unity that the Lord comes first and that sin should not exist in our lives without repentance. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, that we are to preach the word to be instant in season, out of season. And he lays it out, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. This is the instruction that Paul gives to a young minister. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all longsuffering, that's a lot of patience, and doctrine. We are not to spare discipline regarding any doctrine of this Bible, and we are not to be and we are, rather, we are to be diligent in and out of season with long-suffering. This isn't situational church discipline, as some have uh, preferred to situationally apply Bible doctrine here, there, and, uh, and sometimes over there. Uh, it's every jot, every tittle, doing nothing by partiality, 1 Timothy 5.21. Why do we need to be stern and specific at this stage of church discipline? Paul writes to this again, Philippians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored, in vain. There is a dreaded word, uh, compromise, that creeps into our churches when we ignore our responsibilities to preserve this word and this way. And the final part of church discipline is the restoring or removing of the beloved. And it's in our text, and if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Restore. It means to bring back to a former state. This is not one brought back on probation, beloved, but one brought back into the fold as though they'd never left. One who's brought back because they've uh, chosen the route of repentance. They've returned to their first love. They've abandoned the thing that led them, led them astray, and they've returned to the church. We don't hold that weight of past church discipline over such an individual. We don't say that their membership is limited. We don't say you can come back, but you're not going to partake in the Lord's Supper for at least a year. We welcome them back. Forgive as we've been forgiven. This last word, though, remove. It means to take from the role, to be made no longer a part of and then Strong's adds, remit or send away. 
Let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican, Matthew writes. John says, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. There are only a handful of ways out of the Lord's church, and, and there's no other way to say that. I know it sounds like a trap, but when you've been faithful unto the Lord for a season and you've followed and pursued after him and he's led you into the baptismal waters and led you to faithfully join and be a member of his church, there's really only three ways out. There's graduation into the kingdom, death. There's transferring your membership to a like-minded church via letter or a statement and extenuating circumstances or the removal from the role an exclusion of your membership, which is what this removal part speaks of. Note again the purpose. If, ye shall hear, if he shall hear thee, thou hast regained or gained thy brother. Think of the closeness that comes, and I, and I want to bring this out first, the closeness that comes from that experience. I love you so much that I have to talk to you because your house is on fire. I love you so much because you've not come to church and we miss you. I love you so much because I feel like you're on a dangerous track. I love you so much because adultery is wrong. I need to talk to you about this. And I don't know if anybody else in your life loves you enough to have this conversation with you, but you're going down a bad path. I love you so much that you need to know drugs are wrong. Alcoholism is dangerous. You need to know there are folks that care about you, that want the best for you, that want the Lord's blessings for you, and he won't bless this kind of life. This brother who's restored, this brother who's gained back, knows that he has a family, a familial experience here or, or, or uh, relationship here, and there are people here that love him and care for him and want the best for him and pray for him. Lift him up. They want to see him edified and encouraged when he's down. There's worse things than being that ugly friend that goes to somebody and says, I love you anyway. The motive for church discipline is love. We are seeking to help a sinning brother or sister. Since Christ is in the midst of the church, we see this in verse 20 of our text, it is also important that the church be obedient and pure. I know that this kind of thing is uncomfortable. I've been through it many, many, many times. But it's going to be a lot more uncomfortable to try and explain to the Lord why we were unfaithful, why we were disobedient, why this case is different. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 24, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Usually we use this text to speak to the husbands and wives. The inverse is true for us here. As a church, we are subject unto Christ in everything. How we give thanks, how we don't give thanks, how we exercise the truth, how we don't exercise the truth. Everything. In the story of the Good Samaritan, we referred to the inn as a type of the church. With that typology in mind, this individual would be one that was cared for by the inn, but has now rejected their care. Rejecting also the price paid by the Samaritan for their comfort and their care and their edification, their healing. Forgetting their original state at the side of the road. 
The inn has cared for the one given over to, the char to their charge. But that care, that concern, if one has to be uh, removed, is no longer held in any regard at all. Does this mean the church has wasted its time? Wasted its very baptismal waters because one had to be removed? Absolutely not. We, I think there's a reason the Lord's only given us so much information as far as testing the salvation of saved folks. Uh, the love for the brethren really being the greatest thing for us to see. And I've never seen anybody go into the baptismal waters that hasn't displayed some sort of love for the brethren. And I have baptized a few who later said they weren't saved. Uh, there was one back in temperance that chose to never come back again. Did we waste our time? All the, the sermons that were preached in this man's presence, or was it just a waste of time? The day that we dedicated to this man's baptism? He was baptized the same day that Laney and Isaac were. Was it a waste? Of course not. This is a process that's uncomfortable to go through. So is the cross. The Lord knows who are his. And he has a way of bringing out those who pretend to be his. And the Lord will handle it. And that brings us to the latter part of this text, which is really my only other point, the forgiving from the heart. And we see this in verses 21 through 35 of our text. And I've really never taught church discipline and forgiveness together like this before. And, and it paints a, a very interesting picture because this was one event. This, uh, it shouldn't be separated. It was one event. So again, it's important for us to understand Simon Peter's motivation here. He's, he's asking, I uh, forgive seven times. That's pretty good, right? That's more than they do in the temple. I'm extra spiritual. I'm going above and beyond. Is that enough, Lord? Jesus put no limits on forgiveness, though, did he? For true forgiveness comes from a heart of love, and love keeps no records of wrongs. We know this from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, where it says, Charity suffereth long, and it is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeking not her own, is not easily provoked, Thinking no evil, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. That's what charity or love does. So if we're doing discipline, before we get into forgiveness, if we're doing discipline in those three stages that I laid out, in this type of love, and one has to get removed, I'm sure it'll be hard for them to look us in the eye when they see us in the grocery store. I'm sure their life will get more difficult because they're not in the protective uh, coverings of the Lord's church. They're going to squirm. If they're saved, they'll come back. If they're saved, they may be the next one that we don't expect to see come through the back door that we need to be ready to forgive. Well, how's that make any sense, preacher? We had to remove them. We went through that whole deal. And praise the Lord, they can be restored. Praise the Lord. And it may be that they weren't saved to begin with, but through this process, they find salvation. Would we turn such a one away? Because charity here suffers long. And charity is kind, not spiteful. Charity is not jealous. doesn't brag of itself. Charity is not puffed up. Charity doesn't even behave itself unseemly. Charity does not seek her own. Charity is always giving. Always others-minded. Charity is always involved in the next opportunity to embrace someone else. Charity is not provoked. 
Charity is never done in evil. Have you ever loved somebody evilly? Can that even be done? I don't like you, so I'm going to love you. you. Can you do that? Not real charity, not real love. Charity doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Charity abstains from all appearances of evil, to be honest with you. Charity rejoices in truth. Truth literally guides charity. Truth demands charity. Truth uh, is, is literally confessing charity. Because what is truth? Christ Jesus, the Son of God the Father, came down and being blemish-free, without spot, without sin, went to the cross out of love for the elect of God and died. Truth confesses charity. Truth defines charity. And the next part is probably the hardest part for, for me. Charity believeth all things. I don't know that there's a greater pet peeve than I have than being duped by something or someone. Oh, man, I find out that you've betrayed me. It is so hard for me to love again. So hard for me to allow myself to be opened up in that way. And I'm not necessarily speaking on a, of a male-female relationship type love. If you're a friend of mine and you've betrayed me in such a way and, and a name comes to mind and I'll abstain, it's going to be hard for me to believe all things again. But charity does. Real love does. How, brother? How do you get to that point? Forgiveness. It's so hard to truly forgive someone. Literally in the past year, I've sat knee to knee with other preachers that have said, I'm ready to forgive as soon as they repent. Is that truly forgiveness? Well, that, that's how the Lord laid it out. they got to repent and then believe. No, no, we teach it in broken pieces. But this is one thing. So if I'm not going to forgive you until you've repented and you're not going to repent until I've forgiven you, we're in a stalemate. And guess what happens at the end? We both stand before the judge and I have to defend my unforgiving heart towards you because you were unrepentant toward me. Now, charity believeth all things because charity does not hold on to these things. Charity releases these things because charity knows vengeance is of the Lord. Charity hopeth all things. You know, charity sounds like that naive do-good in school, doesn't he? Charity sounds like that one who's always getting duped by people, always hoping for the best. Hate that kid. You're supposed to be that kid, born again believer. You have this spirit of charity within you. You have the ability to be connived, to be duped, to be used and abused, and love again. Because charity endureth all things. Charity has to. Because none of us, not a one of us, deserves charity. Consider the parable that he gives concerning the kingdom of heaven. If the king could forgive the servant's debt of approximately $12 million, certainly the servant could forgive his friend's debt of roughly $15, right? We, we think that this math makes the most sense, I'm sure. We forgive others because Christ has forgiven us. That's the grounds for forgiveness, not because you deserve to be forgiven, but because I didn't and Jesus made it possible for me to be forgiven of all things. 
Ephesians 4.32, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, which also can be translated as freely giving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Colossians 3.13, Forbearing one another, forgiving one another, or freely giving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Man. So now there's the other kid in the class, right? That Jesus guy who's always setting the bar so high, breaking the curve. My wife was a curve breaker, I'm sure. She's so smart. But he's always breaking the curve. You'll never be as good as Jesus. You'll never be as kind as Jesus. You'll never be as innocent as charity. Where do we fall in this class rank? But this Jesus person, who is way better than us at all things because he's not some supreme human, he's God. He made it possible for us to be forgiven for his own sake. That's what it says there in Ephesians 4.32. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. There are three things that Matthew Henry writes concerning this parable that I thought was really interesting. The master's wonderful clemency. The debt of sin is so great that we are not able to pay it. And see here what every sin deserves. This is the wages of sin to be sold as a slave. And some would say, well, wait, death is the wages of sin. Yes, you try being a slave. Your life is over. You're dead to all the dreams and goals you had. You're now slave to this. The second thing he points out is the servant's unreasonable severity toward his fellow servant. Notwithstanding his Lord's clemency toward him, not that we may make light of wronging our neighbor, for that is also a sin against God, but we should not aggravate our neighbors wronging us, nor study revenge. Let our complaints, both of the wickedness of the wicked and of the afflictions of the afflicted, be brought to God and left with him. And this speaks right back to the church discipline thing. If our current situation ends up leading to a form of discipline, we're not to add to that affliction. We're not to add to that situation. We aren't to lecture this individual and scoff at this individual and uh, call his home and say, you got to be ashamed of yourselves. We don't have shame to give others. we got enough of our own. We're to pray for this one. Even if it goes to the removal of their membership, we are to pray for this one fervently. You ought to be doing it right now. Fervently that they be restored. Fervently that they come back. Fervently that they be found faithful. Or fervently that we be found an heir. Well, it is an uncomfortable thing. It should be. It causes all of us to get to know Scripture a lot better. And I've found that for Christians, at least for myself, I'm most uncomfortable in these types of situations because I have to constantly check Scripture. Am I right? Are we doing this correctly? Boy, that ought to be how we do everything, shouldn't it? I'm going to go to Mitaro tonight for supper. Should I? Let me consider the scriptures. Is there a reason not to? Is there a reason to, to? Is there a reason to not overindulge myself on chips and cheese? All of the things that we do with our lives, there should be a thus saith the Lord, or there should definitely not be something that he says against it. We don't get to just do what we want. Boy, that, that sermon will make headlines. We don't get to do just what we want. Well, we're free from the bondage of sin. Yeah, we're free from the bondage of sin, but we're not free to do whatever we want to do and live however we want to live. If we do those things, we're going to experience chastisement because we're not bastards. We're sons of God. 
And as for him and his house, he's going to lead us in a certain way, as every father in here should. You will be obedient. You will be repentant. You will be faithful. You can almost hear him say it because you're my son. You're my son. In his circumstance, he gave of one to purchase you. You're his now. He loves you so much, he's going to intervene. You know what? God's one of those dads. Eavesdrops on your phone call conversations. He's one of them dads that checks your text messages because he's looking at the heartstrings the whole time. He's going to be one of those dads that follows you to the bar, follows you to the game, follows you home again, follows you to Walmart. He so closely follows you that he hears the mumbles in your mind when you have to go through the self-checkout because there's no real cashiers at Walmart. He knows all about it because he loves you that much. The third thing Matt, Matthew Henry points out, I like to call him Matt apparently sometimes, the master reproved his servant's cruelty. The greatness of sin magnifies the riches of pardoning mercy, and the comfortable sense of pardoning mercy does much to dispose our hearts to forgive our brethren. We do not forgive our offending brother aright if we do not forgive him from the heart. Yet this is not enough. We must seek the welfare even of those who offend us. How justly will those be condemned who, though they bear the Christian name, persist in unmerciful treatment of their brethren? The humbled sinner relies only on free, abounding mercy through the ransom of the death of Christ. Let us seek more and more for the renewing grace of God to teach us to forgive others as we hope for forgiveness from Him. I think back to that uh, story of the Good Samaritan. And you know, this one that was beaten, robbed, and left for dead, he had nothing to offer, right? He's as good as dead. The Samaritan didn't lift him up and, and put air in his lungs and then say, now, you're going to love me, right? If I'm going to do all this for you, you, you're going to pay me back? Are you going to be respectful? Are, do you want me to do this? Are you repentant? No. He saw a need and he had compassion on the one and took care of the one. I wonder sometimes the, the Levite, the priest, and went by, if they went by because they thought, that guy's not going to appreciate my care. That guy's not even, he doesn't, he's not asking for help. It could be that his mouth was so swollen he couldn't. But nonetheless, he's not asking for help. So why would I help him? You don't think that's realistic? Go look at some of the traditions around the time of the Lord's ministry. See what even those of the synagogue would have done in that situation. God will certainly deal with a believer who harbors an unforgiving spirit. Lord, help us. One of the evidence that a person is saved is a love for the brethren, which I referenced earlier, and I'll read it for you now. It's in 1 John chapter 3. Verses 10 through 17. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the, Lord, if the world hate you, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God 
because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Is there an afflicted one in your life, lying in the ditch this very hour, that needs your compassion, that needs your love and forgiveness? All the, there is, but I've got all these things going on. Get rid of them. Your bowels of compassion are tied up in things like we talked about this morning. Your bowels of compassion are tied up in past hurts. Your bowels of compassion are tied up in the need for others to apologize, to restore you, to make it right. They're probably not going to. They're probably not. You know the greatest lesson of forgiveness that we've ever received is being forgiven. That's what Jesus did. The greatest example of a Bible that you can be is forgiving someone else, though they don't deserve it. While Saul yet persecuted Christ, he was saved on Damascus Road. What was he on Damascus Road for? To go persecute others. He got authority going into Damascus. Men, women, children, if they're following the way, I'm going to get them. But he was forgiven. He didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve it. He was, by his own confession, the chiefest of sinners. And he was forgiven of Jesus. I think Jesus could teach us a thing or two about forgiveness. I've given the illustration before, but what if the very last person you ever thought would walk through those doors does so in the next few minutes? And they've come to apologize. They've come seeking your forgiveness. Some will say that's not likely to happen. It did happen to me, which is why I give the illustration over and over and over again. Our former pastor in temperance, left in a huff. I was already preaching for other churches in lieu of a call, Livingstone, which is now uh, without a pastor again, was the one I was going back and forth with at the time, amongst others. And uh, he felt that the church was going to move in a different direction without him, so he was going to go ahead and issue the breakup. He literally told the church there, it's not me, it's you. I'd like to think he got the line wrong, but he meant that. This was the pastor that I surrendered to preach under. I was looking to him as an example, hoping he would lead me, hoping he would show me the way, instruct me. Three years go by. We had to discipline a lot of folks. Truth hadn't been taught in quite a while. Sometimes that's how it goes. I accept a call to pastor here. And in those final weeks, he shows up. The whole time, I'm thinking, what does he want? What is he here? To, is he? Maybe the church will keep going. Maybe he says he wants to come. I don't know. I don't know what, the, what he's here for. He stays for an afternoon lesson that I think Isaac or, or Jerry was teaching at the time. And then that lesson seemingly ended way too fast. And I thought, now I'm going to find out what he's here for. He asked if we can go up to the office, which in my mind was kind of like Chris's old desk. It was Chris's old desk, still is Chris's old desk. This is Matt's old office. So we go up to Matt's old office, which had been mine for three years, and he says, I need to apologize. I realized in that very moment I had never forgiven him. I had never forgiven him. 
You might think this story is all about one coming and asking forgiveness, and isn't that amazing? But I'd realize, devastatingly, that I'd never forgiven him. I had no place to hold a grudge. I'm commanded to not. I'm commanded to no charity. And yet here stands a man who is taller than Isaac, a mountain of a man, and he's bawling in front of me, asking for my forgiveness. He drove an hour to get there that day. So what if that person comes through that door right now for you? And they say, I've suddenly realized that I've wronged you. Are you harboring unforgiveness? Are you nailing somebody to a cross right now with your wrath, with your spite, looking for an opportunity to pass them by on the other side should you come upon them on the crooked, windy road? Or are you prepared, whoever it is, to give aid and have compassion on them? Christians who cannot forgive others have forgotten what Christ has done for them on the cross. They've forgotten what that was all about. The church that chooses to forsake church discipline is elected to hold on to that which they know to be leavened. Create a room for it. Allow for it to breed. Paul addressed the church in Corinth for doing that very thing, and we'll close with this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6-8. through 8. Paul says, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I mean, we could just keep on going, couldn't we, and preaching forgiveness. I know you've all been hurt one way or another. I know from the past year a select group of folks who just seem to love to kick this church in the shins. We have to forgive them. We have to forgive them. We can argue later if it's right or wrong in your opinion. We have to forgive them. And we have to pray for them. I mean, I, I imagine Priscilla and Aquila heard that first nasty sermon from Apollos, and they're like, this guy. And they could have shown him the door. They could have offered to him to stay and eat the free food at lunch, but this fellowship with you is over because you don't preach the truth. But instead, they take Apollos under their wings and they help him to find a more perfect understanding, a more excellent understanding of Jesus Christ. He understood some things. He followed the, John the Baptist. He understood some things, but he was in error. I have a great concern for our Baptists, especially our group, our landmark Sovereign Grace Missionary Baptists. And you heard it a little bit in the sermon this morning. It breaks my heart that we feel obliged to make circles and control who's in it and out of it. It breaks my heart that we've set up boundaries of fellowship with imperfect individuals, and I'm sure we're guilty of it too, because we're not willing to forgive, and we're not allowing ourselves to feel qualified to teach. We are not perfect. We are not perfect. May the Lord help us to have a more forgiving spirit. May the Lord help us to have thicker skin. Definitely that one's for me, but I'm sure you all need it too. May the Lord equip us for what's ahead. 
there were some prophets, and we've talked about a few of them, that had real tough jobs. And in these final times, if the rapture is not coming soon, we're going to need some more prophets who are going against the grain and reminding folks of the need to repent. If maybe that's one of us, maybe that's the ministry one of us has. Pray for one another. A man once told me that we, uh, we need another Moses in our day. I think, I think we need them all. I think we need a Jeremiah and Isaiah. I think we need them all. Pray for one another. None of us in here are done. And I, I just ask you to keep me in your prayers because the ministry is tough sometimes. And it's, it's not y'all's fault. The ministry is tough with or without y'all. But y'all are a blessing to me. And y'all edify me. But do pray for me. Um, we need it. We need it. I pray for you as well.